together again in the book of Job, looking at various readings in Job 8, 9, and 10. We will not be going through each chapter or each verse in the book of Job, but today looking at a summary of these chapters. You'll also find an outline on page 5 if you'd like to follow along. Beginning in Job chapter 8 and verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Verse 15. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so In myself. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Verse 12 You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Verse 20 Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There's a book that was written a number of years back, maybe you've heard of it, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written by a rabbi named Harold Kushner who suffered through the death of a son at a young age. As you think about the title, there's something fundamentally wrong there, isn't there? 
The problem with the title is that none of us are good in God's sight. We need to remember that. There is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. So the question really is not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to sinners, to bad people? And there we are reminded of the abounding, abundant grace of God. But as you read the book of Job, it's not so much that that we're focused on, is it? Because here in Job's book, there's a twist on Kushner's title, I think. Why do bad things happen to God's people? That's what I want us to look at here today. Because in the life of this man, it's like, as someone wrote, a long desert road with no lights, no rest stops, no exit ramps, no water. Imagine driving between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Maybe you've been on that road. And there's just no way out. It goes on and on. It's hot. Your car is overheating. That's what the book of Job is kind of like. Agony. Groaning. He wants to die. He's sitting on an ash heap. Now remember, this is a true story. This is a real man. He's got sores that are oozing and open and ulcers and all sorts of awful things with his body. He's lost all of his money. He's lost all of his wealth. But even more than that, he's lost his children. And his three friends come to visit him. Eliphaz, we met him last week. Zophar, Lord willing, we'll meet him in the future. And today, Bildad. We want to look at this very important theme. Why do bad things happen to God's people? And when it does, how do we respond? What do we say to others in the midst of their suffering? And even more than that, what do we think of God in all of this? First, then, Bildad's blunt words. At the end of chapter 7, Job cried out, like the psalmist does, How long? How long will these sufferings continue? And now you'll notice Bildad picks up on that in chapter 8. It might be kind of a sarcastic remark. Job, how long are you going to keep going on? You're a windbag. You continue to say things, but they have no substance. Job, you are questioning the justice of God. Bildad is brutal. He's loveless. He's confronting Job here in a very blunt manner. He says in verse 3, does God pervert justice? Meaning, does God twist or bend or make justice crooked? Of course not. So why does he bring up that point? He wants to say that, Job, you are suffering because God's justice has been enforced. As Derek Thomas says, there's no other explanation in Bildad's view for why Job is suffering. It's always because of God's punitive displeasure. Eliphaz said the same thing. Suffering is God's punishment for sin. Retribution theology. What goes around comes around. All of Job's friends are saying this, loved ones. I'd encourage you to read through the book of Job during our time together because you'll see that these guys are on repeat. They're saying four things. God is sovereign and holy and just. That's true. 
man is punished for sin and rewarded for righteousness. Is that true? They're saying this all happens in this life. This is the typical legalist view. So if you're blessed outwardly, God's happy with you. If you're suffering, God's mad at you. They're also saying, Job, we're not suffering. So something must be going well with us. You are suffering, so you need to repent. Everything is simple for them. It's black and white. It's merit and reward. And the brutal nature of this is seen in verse 4. This might be the most cruel line in Bildad's speech. If your children have sinned. Now, he doesn't really mean if. He means your children have sinned. That's why they died suddenly. That's why their death has happened, Job. You prayed for them. You pointed them to the mercy of God, but you failed, Job. It's on you as a father. And maybe you parents have felt some of that shame that you shouldn't feel. See, people can heap shame upon us. We can heap shame upon ourselves. We can think, well, it must be my fault. If my children aren't walking with the Lord, I must have done something wrong. What's wrong with me? And that's not at all what God's word wants to tell you. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, none of us is a perfect parent. But this is the word, really, that Satan wants Job to hear. Job, you failed them. But there's still hope for you. You're not dead yet, Job. If you seek God, verse 5, If you urgently go to God, prove yourself upright, your habitation, your life, your health, your money, your family, it all will come back to you, Job. Do you see what he's doing? As Pastor Danny Hyde says, he's teaching an if-then type of repentance. That's the classic move of the false teaching of the health-wealth stuff. They take a truth, and they twist it into a test. Does God promise that if we repent, he will answer us and restore us? He does. But that doesn't mean necessarily all the tangible, physical stuff of life. Bildad says, you repent, Job, you're going to be prosperous. All of those wealth and the blessings of life that you had taken away, that's all going to come back to you. That's what Satan was saying, remember? Satan said, God, Job only loves you because of the stuff. You take away his wealth, you take away his health, you take away his kids, he's going to curse you, God. Bildad says, I've got proof for my ideas on retribution. Tradition. Tradition. That's his proof. He goes back to the fathers. Generations past. And not only did they say it, but let's just look around Job. The Nile River, the papyrus that grows 8 to 10 feet tall, the swampy, all sort of yucky stuff in the, in the swamp kids. You, you, when you see that, everything grows there, doesn't it? In a swamp, you've got leaves and trees and plants. But you dry up the swamp. We've seen some of that in Minnesota this summer. What happens to that formerly lush eight-foot-high tree or bush, it dies. It's cut down in the midst of its fruitfulness. Job, that's what happened to your friends, your children. 
They were in the prime of life. They're cut down. And just like a plant without water, so also the trust of someone who doesn't believe in God will flitter away. Now, that's true, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? If you don't believe in God, if you forget God, he says, it's like putting your trust on a spider's web. It's like falling on top of a spindly little web, kids. How much would that web hold you up if you fell on it? It might bother your eyes. We were camping this summer, and I thought as my wife took a couple of the kids to the beach, I'm going to take a shortcut. Never a good idea. I'm going to cut right through some of the campsites. And as I cut through them, guess what we found, some of the boys and I? Spider webs everywhere. They were in our eyes. They were in our hair. There were spiders crawling on the webs. We were kind of jumpy. But we couldn't land on those webs to hold us up. Bildad is saying, by not trusting in God, you have as much hope as a spider web would of holding you up. What's missing in Bildad's view of God? It's a simple system, isn't it? As one person says. Many centuries of religious tradition say the same thing. But the question is this, is it true? If it's true, what Bildad says, this is why this is so important. There will be no undeserved suffering in the universe. And if there's no undeserved suffering, there can be no what? Redemptive suffering. No sacrificial substitutionary suffering. No cross of Jesus. No grace. No forgiveness. This is striking at the core of the gospel. And this is so contemporary sounding. That's why the book of Job resonates so much. Because there's a lot of philosophical type questions here that people in this world today are asking. As Bildad goes on in speeches 2 and 3, he says the same thing. No hope. No mercy, no grace. He's an Old Testament Pharisee. His words are more like Islam than Christianity. Is there anything then to apply to us from the speech of Bildad? I think there is. When you think about his speech, we realize how much of our day is spent using this thing. What is that, kids? Stick it out. What is it? It's your tongue. Your tongue is a small part of your body, but it boasts of great things, doesn't it? How much trouble do we get in because of the tongue? How much sin against God do we commit because of the tongue? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Loved ones, we can't talk this way. And in Christ, we have grace not to talk this way, not to be blunt like this. A blunt person is brief, direct, and rude. As David Paulison says, honesty in the raw is always perverted by the insanity of sin. I don't know about you, but I realize if I'm hungry or angry or lonely or tired, I should not open my mouth. I should pray. I should not start talking to my kids or my wife. If my kids are disobeying, we need to Sit down and, and talk about that, of course. Loving grace and loving discipline. But that's not the time for me, in my frustration, to harshly treat them in a way that gives them no grace. 
the way we treat others, loved ones, is the way we think God has treated us. So when I fail to show grace to my wife or kids, I'm expressing that's how I think God has treated me. Honesty in the raw. It's willful, it's opinionated, it's self-centered. The fool loves to air his opinion, Proverbs 18.2. He finds no pleasure in understanding. Ephesians 4 says, on the other hand, speak the truth in love. We can't separate love from the truth. If we speak the truth without love, it's self-righteous. I know everything. What's wrong with you? It's airing my opinion. If we try to speak love without truth, we're just kind of trying to get people to like us. We're just worried about our impression on them. You separate truth and love, you have neither truth nor love. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what? Building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Bildad doesn't believe in grace. Bildad is offering Job no grace. Corrupting, meaning bacteria that corrupts food. Alistair Groves talks about this. The bacteria comes, it poisons the food, it makes you sick or even worse. That's what we don't want our words to do, corrupt. Words in anger, I hate you. They're corrupting. Blame shifting. You do the same thing, or you actually do worse. I did that this week. I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, this is a very funny story, but our dog got a bunch of burrs on her head, and all these burrs in the garden, and, and I'm trying to cut the burrs out with a, a scissors. That was a bad idea. And trying to cut the burrs out, I actually cut the dog, and so there's burrs, and there's blood, and it's just not a good thing. And I got angry with my wife. What, what was I thinking? It's my fault. I shouldn't have let the dog go up there, and then I shouldn't have started snipping away like I'm a, a dog hairdo person. What do you call these people? Blame shifting. In our anger, in our pride, we can easily do that. How about self-pity? Of course, another thing would go wrong today. It's not fair that I have to deal with this right now on top of this that's already happened. Our words can easily produce a snowball. A snowball in our hearts that then we can use to manipulate others. Those are corrupting words, and they destroy people. But rather, God says, use your words to build up, to give grace. We're a people of the God of grace. We serve God who's full of grace. His word testifies to us of his grace. That's then the way, by the Holy Spirit, we ought to treat others. Think about the occasion in which we speak. Rarely, if ever, does anything good happen in our conversations in our home after what claimed? I I used to say 10 o'clock, but I think it's 9. Rarely, if ever. I ought not have any serious substantial conversation after 9 o'clock. I don't know what time it is for you. Words that fit the occasion. If you're tired, you ought not to then launch into something. Think about the time in which we speak. Honesty in the raw cuts people down. That's the point. That's build that. Honesty in the raw. Now, this doesn't mean you should never confront someone in love. 
There are times that prayerfully we need to launch into something. We should not avoid conflict. See, this is not Minnesota nice. This is not just never say anything. Secondly, from Bildad's bluntness to Job's wrestlings with God. Job chapter 9 is a response to what Bildad himself was asking. Job says in verse 1, Bildad, you're right. God does not pervert justice. I know this is so. Then he says, but. And as one commentator says, go to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 35. What's the but about? But I am not so in myself. Yes, God punishes sin. Yes, God blesses righteousness. He's agreeing with Bildad there. But he's saying that doesn't apply to me. How can a man be in the right before God, he says. He's not talking about justification like Paul will in Galatians. He does believe in the promise of the gospel and the promise of justification by faith alone as it's in a seed form here. But that's not the point. He's talking about how can I be assured of justice before a God whose ways I cannot fathom. Justice, that word, what does that mean? It means the law of God, the wisdom of God, and the strength of God altogether. Law, wisdom, strength. Because you have to have power to do what is right. You, you can't just know what's right. So who is perfectly just in that way? Only God himself. And that's Job's problem. How can I say to God, who is perfectly just and wise, what are you doing? This is raw, loved ones, as you read Job 9. This is wrestling. This is a believer who's struggling immensely with life and is not trying to bottle it all up. God doesn't want you just to bottle up your grief and sorrow. He wants you to cry out to him. Even in complaint, that's what he's doing. The Psalms of Lament have complaint in them. They don't end in themselves. They talk about complaint. They talk about grief. They talk about suffering. It leads them, the psalmist, to praise God. A psalm of lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. Job is saying, I want to take God to court. This is raw stuff. I want God to give an account of his actions. I want to sue God. I'm pleading, I'm arguing. This is a different side of Job than we've seen before. But as I take God to court, I realize he's mighty. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. He's wise. That's an amazingly true statement, isn't it? Do you see Job's wrestlings? At times he's saying wonderfully true things of God. At other times he's expressing, I'm struggling. He begins to sing a hymn in verse 5. So he begins to praise God. At the same time, he's taking God to court. Both things are happening at the same time. But as he praises God, he quickly realizes, my life that was stable has been overturned. Maybe you felt that. Maybe the last 18 months. Maybe 10 years ago. Maybe the death of a spouse. Maybe the diagnosis of an illness. Maybe the betrayal of a friend. Maybe your own foolishness and sin that has led to all sorts of bad stuff. 
You think this is chaotic. Job says, God, you're a troublemaker. God, you've caused earthquakes to replace order with disorder. God, you're incomprehensible, he says in verse 10. That's true. We'll see later. There's more to God than that. But he says, God, you're unapproachable. You're distant. You're invisible. How can I talk to you? How can I bring up this court case against you? Even the helpers of Rahab, verse 13, are no match for you, God. Now, here's where you need a good Bible commentary. Here's where in a Bible study, you're reading this book, you say, okay, oh, Rahab, he's talking about, is he talking about Rahab in the book of Joshua? (laughs) He's not. That's why we need good sources to help us. This is not Joshua's Rahab. This is Rahab, a mythical demonic figure from pagan religions. Rahab, even those helpers are no match for you, God. What am I going to do? I'm a mere man. How am I going to challenge the justice of God? I don't even think God's listening, he says. Do you ever feel that way when you pray? And even if he was listening, I feel like God's going to knock the wind out of me, verse 18 of chapter 9, that I'm going to get pushed backwards if I try to bring up this prayer to him. God, I have some complaints. Do you think, well, are there more? There are. Do you realize God never says enough's enough? He never tells you, okay, I'm done for the day. Enough whining for the day, enough praying for the day. God's heart for you in Christ is gentle. He wants you to bring these things to him and to cry out to him. Job says, okay, a runner has a goal, which is the finish line, verse 25, chapter 9. An eagle has a plan. What's the eagle's plan, kids? To get food. He's going to go down by that river and he's going to grab those fish. But my life has no purpose. It's just wandering. So I've got two ideas. One, I could just pretend everything's fine. I could just put on a smiley face and say on the ash heap, things are great. That's not how we live as a family of God here at this church. We don't pretend, we don't kind of act like everything's fine when it's not. We are weak, we are frail, we need Jesus, we need each other to help us to look to Jesus. So that's not going to work. I'm not going to pretend. Then he says, okay, maybe I'll purify myself, verse 30. I offered sacrifices to my children. Maybe I'll try doing that. But then he says, you know what, at the end of the day, even if I try all these things to bring God to court, even if he comes to court, my own lips will be my undoing. That's ironic, isn't it? In light of Bildad's lips. Job says in verse 20, my own mouth will condemn me. What's behind his wrestlings? What question is he after? Here's David's strain. Job wants to prosecute God but only because he has forgotten God is not the agent of spiritual evil. The key to unlock his dark prison is close at his hand. Where is it? We'll see in a moment. 
Job has overlooked the truth that Satan is real and active. It's not God he should prosecute. It's the enemy of his soul, the devil, who has conspired against him. That's what he's missing here. Verse 22, he accuses God of destroying the blameless and the wicked. He's calling upon God to resign. He's saying God is aloof. He mocks the calamity of his people. There's injustice everywhere. And here's the key, verse 24, that he doesn't quite reach, but we can see more clearly. Look at verse 24. Job chapter 9. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? What's that saying? People with power to decide the destinies of others, judges, do not judge justly. Their faces are covered, this verse is saying. And it's an idiom, as one commentator says. Covering the face speaks of distorting judgment, like a bribe. A bribe blinds the clear-sighted, Exodus 23. But when this happens, who is causing it? Job thinks God is causing it. Job thinks God is making those wicked judges do wickedness. Is that true? Remember, Job believes in the sovereignty of God. Job will say many things about God that are true. Chapter 42, verse 7 says that. Yet he also says many things about God that are not true. There's a distinction, Christopher Ashe says, between Job's perception and Job's heart. It's the heart of a believer. His perception is flawed. He's struggling because of this question. Can Job discern the character of God from the actions of God? When bad things happen, who does them? Job is saying God does these things. God is causing the evil. But he forgets that Satan is behind it all. That God governs the world through the intermediate agency of supernatural forces, some of whom are evil. Do you remember David taking the census of Israel in his sin? Who was behind that? 2 Samuel 24, the Lord incited David. 1 Chronicles 21, Satan incited David. 1 Chronicles is not saying that Satan is independent from the Lord. But the chronicler is saying, as this one man says, God's action is different in this way. Meaning, in God's secret decree, he always ordains all that comes to pass. But God does not make the judges blind, Job 9.24. God does not make them do wickedness. God is not causing them to sin. God did not cause David to sin. What's the theological distinction between God as the ultimate cause of events and secondary causes? Job missed that. So he accuses God of injustice, not realizing the influence of Satan in this, and Satan can only do what God allows him to do. So there's a, there's a mystery here, isn't there? 
This is not a mathematical equation that we walk away saying, I got that figured out. Here's Christopher Ashe. Some of God's actions express his character, while others are the outworking of his longer plan to deal with evil. When God acts in steadfast love, that's showing his character. When evil happens, God is acting through the agencies of evil powers, and the actions don't reveal his character. They're a part of his plan to turn evil to good, to defeat evil, but they don't immediately reveal his character. That's what Job doesn't grasp yet. And neither do we fully. Job goes on to lament. In chapter 10, he moves from debate to prayer. He says, God, you're silent. I don't think you're good. That's the struggle for Job. God, you're sovereign, but are you good? Are you listening to me? God, you made me, chapter 10, verse 10, kind of like the production of cheese. Kids, have you ever been to a cheese shop? You look at all the things that go into it. Some of us visited there after camp a few years ago. That's a lot of stuff, and they're churning stuff, and they're using stuff, and they got cheese coming out of it. Job talks about cheese. He's saying, God, you formed me like someone forming cheese. And not only that, God, but you've given me steadfast love, chapter 10, verse 12. Covenant, faithfulness. But that's all in the past, God. Now I'm bitter. Now, chapter 10, verse 16, you're hunting me like a lion. Verse 17, it's like an army that's broken through the wall, helms deep. They're attacking. There's no hope. God is pouring trouble upon me. Remember what he's forgetting. He's forgetting what we just talked about in chapter 9. He's forgetting what Satan's doing here. He's helpless. He's disillusioned. He feels condemned. He feels totally depressed. He ends the lament. God, just leave me alone before I die. After this, it's just thick darkness. It's disorder. It's devoid of your presence. Job says life makes no sense. Maybe you feel that way. Young people, maybe teenagers, you think, life, what's life about? Grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, maybe you struggle with this. I can't get a handle on things. He feels totally alone. God has abandoned me, he says. He has not, but that's what he thinks. My friends are brutal. I have no one to talk to. I have no comforter. Think of the inmate in prison, the divorcee eating dinner alone, the widow who buried a husband, the single person who wants to get married, the misunderstood teenager. All of us have different times in life and different seasons of loneliness. Maybe you're in one right now. And when we are depressed, Job is depressed. The Bible speaks to that. The Bible's not all about just everything's wonderful, put on a smiley face. The Bible speaks to dark days. You're not alone, loved ones, if you're in the fog of depression. One person, Alistair Groves, asked this very pointed question How long does it take you to get out of bed in the morning? 
He says, did that change over the course of the last 18 months? One, pe- one person says, at first I didn't recognize the symptoms. Trouble concentrating, lying in bed too long, maybe burnout, maybe depression, maybe hopelessness, joylessness. The word above all that this person says describes this is languishing. Job is languishing. Maybe you've been languishing, muddling through days, looking at life through a foggy windshield. This pastor says that might be the dominant emotion of 2021, languishing. Time rolling, but doesn't bring any change. Things aren't getting better. They might be getting worse. That's what Job was saying. I feel like blah. I feel like I'm weary. And when we become discouraged, we can easily become disillusioned about God. Job is thinking, if God were listening to my circumstances and to me, things would change. Then these circumstances would get better, but God's not listening. And loved ones, here's an application for us. Too often we allow our circumstances to shape our picture of God. If our circumstances are good, we think that means God's good. If our circumstances are bad, we start to become disillusioned, cynical. There's biblical hope for us, loved ones. One of the promises of God is that in the midst of your weariness, he's with you. When you wake up tomorrow morning, remember that God is personally, providentially involved in every detail of your life. He's working all things for your good. He loves you. The Father himself loves you. He gave his son for you. You can have confidence that God is not cold towards you, that God is not distant towards you, that God's not cynical towards you. Yes, God is incomprehensible, but that does not mean he's unknowable. God is far beyond our understanding. And yet we can know him truly. We've been made in his image. We will never know him fully, as R.C. Sproul says, even in all eternity. He's incomprehensible. We'll never get to the bottom and say, I'm done, I'm graduated, what's next? But you can know him truly. And who is God? In times of joy and sorrow, he's the same, isn't he? Is God just? Yes. Is God holy, holy, holy? Yes. But like Lamentation says, God doesn't from the heart afflict people or grieve the children of men. Meaning God's not out to try to destroy you. His finger's not out on the trigger trying to mow you down. God delights in mercy. And as Isaiah 28 says, judgment is his strange work. Job forgot that God is merciful. He forgot that God is gracious. Loved ones, God is his attributes. The love of God is a sovereign love. His justice is a loving justice. And where do we see both the justice and mercy of God meet? What do we know that Job longed for but did not yet see as we see? Even as Bildad pounds away at Job, 
even as Job hits the depths of despair, do you notice he cries out for something? Chapter 9, verse 15, he cries out for mercy. Chapter 9, verse 33, he longs for what? An arbiter. Job, who's living around or before the time of Abraham, is crying out for a mediator. In the midst of his lawsuit against God, he wants someone to arbitrate his case before the just and holy God. And we read in Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, the man Christ Jesus. God provides what Job seeks. Jesus purchased our justification. He secured peace between God and us. He represented you, his people, before the Father. He died for your sins. All your sins are laid on him. He represents the Father to you, showing great love by dying for your sins, by fulfilling all righteousness in his life for you. God is perfectly merciful and just. He sent his son to assume the nature that our disobedience had been committed in, human nature. He bore in his human nature the punishment of our sin. He died for that sin. God then makes known his justice to his son. Jesus is charged with our sin, and he pours out his goodness and mercy on us who are sinful and and not good people by nature. He gives to us his son to die by a most perfect love. He raises Jesus to life for our justification that by him we might have, by faith, immortality and eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a mediator, the Lord Jesus who has gone deep into darkness for us, who has plumbed the depths of suffering in the midst of sadness and feeling weary and languishing, oh God. We trust in Jesus. In our struggle with temptation and sin and trials, we know that you, oh God, are with us in Emmanuel, that our Savior loved us, that he gave himself up for us, and that he is with us as he has promised in the word, even to the end of the age. Lord, help us to encourage each other to press on by looking to Jesus by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.